Hey, fellas. There is not a man that I have ever met that is not seeking his own joy above all else. What I mean by that is I have yet to meet a man who is not at the very base of his existence, pursuing happiness and joy with every thought in his head, with every muscle in his body, and with every opportunity he is presented within his capacity to grab it. That's what I mean when I say I've never met a guy that's not pursuing joy like that. For example, right now, I am overjoyed at the thought that I get to speak to you guys about joy. Because when Jeff came to me and said, uh, would you come and preach on joy? Uh, I didn't hesitate because preaching is something I love to do, and so I grabbed at the opportunity to do it. Now, I might have said no, and then you all could have heard from someone far more qualified than me to speak on it. Too bad for you, but joy is for me. And as I said before, I haven't met a man yet who's not going after his own joy above all else. So, of course, no, I'm kidding. I care about your joy, too, as far as you know. But what I want to establish, like, right away, right here at the top, is that joy is something we are all after. Every person on this planet is hardwired by our Creator to go after as much joy as we can possibly get. That's how we're made. And because that's true, every decision that we will ever make will be one that will bring us the most happiness and joy. Every single decision. From the most fun opportunity to the most tragic circumstance, every decision that we make as human beings is motivated by the question, what do I think will bring me the most joy? Now, you may not believe that. So, uh, before we get into the scriptures to understand the gospel joy that is the fruit of spiritual revival, I'm going to give you two examples. One that's a very mundane, positive example, and one that is an agonizingly awful, negative example. But what I think you'll see that they have in common is that they both answer the question, what do I think will bring me the most joy? When I go to Cold Stone Creamery, with my wife, I have to factor in an extra 10 minutes for that trip. Because she has a hard enough time deciding between the 12 pre-made flavors that they have in most places, but when they give you an assortment of ice creams and mix-ins and they tell you to make your own flavor, my wife has full-blown analysis paralysis at that point. (coughs) And I'm serious, we get in the line and I just know that when we get to the front and wind our way there, I'm going to have to wave people by me. I'm going to say, no, go ahead, it's fine. No, seriously, fine, it's okay. I need four-way flashers for that place. I I feel like that's what I should have next time I go. Because my wife is seizing the opportunity to make the selection that will bring her the most joy in that moment. And, of course, far be it for me to suggest that she should just make a choice already. Um, I've been down that road before. It doesn't work super well. It's not joyful for you. No, it's not. It's just robbing me of my joy. That's what happens. I'm going to patiently wait this thing out. That's how it's going to go down. Yeah. Every positive choice, guys, is like that. Every single one. Uh, every choice that you'll ever make. If we choose something good for ourselves, it increases our joy. If we sacrifice something good for ourselves so that another person can have it, that's because giving it to the other person, actually we believe it will increase our joy more than having it for ourselves. For instance, you are here this weekend 
because you believe that the experience of this conference is worth the time that you're going to spend on it. Or you were brought here by someone you love and you want to please that person. You think that will bring you the most joy. Or you were dragged here by someone you had to listen to, but you wanted to please that person because you thought it would be more joyous to please them than to make them angry. All reasons that you brought here were brought here to get the most joy. Positive choices are always made to increase that joy. But then the question comes, well, what about the negative choices? What about the negative ones? Fellas, I want to tell you that even the most awful negative choices made in the direst circumstances are made in answer to the question, what do I think will bring me the most joy? A couple of weeks ago, um, uh, you, you may have heard of a guy named Aaron Hernandez. Does anybody know that name, Aaron Hernandez? He was drafted by the New England Patriots a few years ago to be uh, one of their players, a tight end. And uh, he was very promising. And in fact, he assigned a five-year, $40 million contract, but then was tried and convicted of a murder and was sent away to prison for the rest of his life without parole. And recently, he was acquitted of two more murders. They brought him in for for that, and they couldn't uh, pin it on him or whatever, and so he was he was acquitted. But when he got back to his cell, uh, he realized that he was still facing uh, an entire lifetime behind bars, and so he took his own life by hanging himself with a bed sheet. Now that is a terrible, tragic story of a guy who made a lot of wrong choices, including his final choice to take his life. And I want to tell you guys, that even that was done in answer to the question, what do I think will bring me the most joy? Because at 26 and facing a lifetime behind bars, sadly, he felt like that was the best path forward. Every man, every person is hardwired by God as a gift to seek and to find for himself all the joy that he can get. And every choice we make, no matter how positive or how negative, no matter how open and with all kinds of options available to us or how constricted down to one or two choices, every choice we make is in accordance with our insatiable desire for personal joy. So here's the question, why aren't we all just overjoyous all the time? Why aren't we filled with happiness? Aren't we, we shouldn't be overwhelmingly happy. Shouldn't we just be turning cartwheels down the street? Shouldn't it just be amazing all the time? If we've been eating up joy like hungry, hungry hippos, shouldn't we just be smiling everywhere, just high-fiving strangers on the street? Hey, how you doing? Everywhere we go, shouldn't it be like that? Instead, we all look like we're down at the DMV with the wrong paperwork. That's, that's the countenance we all have, right? Oh, here we go again. Well, why, why? If all we're doing is consuming the things that will make us so full of joy, how come we're not joyous? What's the difference? Why is my heart longing for joy that not satisfied by my own ability to grab it for myself? Well, of course, this is where we have to wrestle with the problem of sin, which is the poison of our rebellion against God that ruins everything and our desperate need for spiritual revival. And to restore our hearts. And I'm going to leave the bulk of that discussion of sin to other presentations this weekend because I, I get to talk about joy. And I'm not going to stray too far uh, from that topic. But suffice it to say that the one way that you can define sin 
is our insistence that we can give ourselves joy apart from a loving relationship with our Creator. See, Eve's contemplation of the benefits of eating that forbidden fruit really is a template for all of the sinful decisions that we make in rebellion against God. See, she thought it was uh, that, that it looked good, and that it was going to taste good, and that it was going to make her like God. And of course, Adam followed right behind her because he thought, well, maybe all those things are true, and if she does it first, then it's really going to be her fault in the end. Fellas, every time you open up a browser late at night and look at forbidden women... Every time you tell your wife a lie to get what you want, every time you manipulate other people in your life to get ahead, maybe at work, what you're doing is you're using your God-given desire to find joy in places where you cannot find it, where there is no joy to be found. Sin makes our hearts look for joy in the wrong places. See, what we're doing is we're feeding our soul with things that are not food. Just ask the preacher of Ecclesiastes who wrote this. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, don't make the wrong conclusion here. So many would look at this problem and conclude that what we need to do is we need to start making choices against our own best interest. So, so choosing, we need to start choosing things that would make us least happy. If we do that, then we'll avoid this problem. And ironically, you can't. You can't. What I mean is, it's not logically possible for you to do that. Because in that moment, in the moment you decide to do that, you would be deciding that depriving yourself would make you more holy and acceptable to God, which is ironically the thing you now think would give you the most joy. Whoa. That just flipped quickly, didn't it? So meta. But it's true. The only difference between the guy who indulges in everything... And the guy who, who deprives himself of everything is that they're both going after the same thing with different means. That's it. That's it. They got this, they're going after the same end with different paths. They're their own joy. And fellas, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. We don't need self-denial any more than we need self-indulgence. What we need are hearts that are restored to their factory settings. Tuned once again to seek and to find joy in our Creator and in the way our Creator intends us to find that joy abundantly. What we need is revival in our souls that renovates our hearts and restores within us a passion for the true joy that God made us to experience only in Christ. If you're hearing in me a lot of what you hear when you read a book or listen to a sermon by John Piper, that's because I'm heavily influenced by him on this part. On this part. If you've ever a desiring God or things like that, I highly recommend it to you. When Jeff gave me this topic, actually, um, the first words out of my mouth were, oh, you gave me the John Piper slot. <laughs> so, I'm excited to have it. 
As I have heard Pastor John say so many times, the key to turning away from the destructive false joys of the world is not to deny ourselves joy, but to glut our desire for joy in Christ. It's to be completely filled and satisfied in Christ. Fellas, our sin problem doesn't come from wanting to be happy. It comes from settling for things that can't make us happy. That's where it's coming from. You were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the Catechism says. And so what we need is revival. We need hearts that ache and long to glorify a Creator. That's what we need. We need transformation within us. This is... It says, I don't desire anything that my Creator has not given me. I desire the, the goodness and the salvation and the new life that I have in Christ. That's what I need my heart to say so that I find joy in the right place. Let me try to describe the relationship between spiritual revival and joy. Spiritual revival through faith in Christ produces in us a wave of joy that erupts from the hearts of our of God's elect and spills out over everything. Okay, that, That's the way. Spiritual revival transforms my heart and builds up within me a wave of joy that crashes over every area of my life. Much like uh, an earthquake produces a wave that, that, that builds in height and strength before crashing over the land and devastating everything, the gospel erupts joy that flows out of us. The difference, of course, is that where a tsunami destroys everything, the gospel redeems everything. But what they have in common is this singular source and comprehensive upheaval. Revival that has erupted in the heart of a believer will produce joy that upends every settlement in his life. There is nothing that will go untouched by the gospel. We're going to spend our time in two places uh, today. I want to talk about the source of gospel joy and the effect of gospel joy. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, I'm going to begin in verse 16. Paul and Barnabas have traveled to uh, across the Mediterranean Sea up to uh, a city on the coast of Turkey called Pisidian Antioch. Uh, it's called Pisidian Antioch so that it's not confused with Syrian Antioch, where they came from. And this is a, we could go to a lot of places, but this is a great place for us to see the source of gospel joy. Now, it's a long passage. I'm going to read from 16 to 52, okay? So stick with me. I want, to, I want you to see this whole sermon, then we'll go back and look at it. Beginning in 13, 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. 
Of this man's offspring, God has brought to, to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest... What is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of the high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
I love how right before he starts preaching, if you look at the verse right before uh, where we started to read, you will see that Paul and Barnabas are visitors and they're asked if they could give a word of exhortation. Uh, and what happens is Paul's like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And he steps up there and he tells them all, he starts off by telling them how God chose Israel and then put up with them for 40 years. Because that's what you want out of your guest speaker, isn't it? A little, little jab there. Remember that, guys? Remember when we totally rebelled against God for 40 years and, and, and even though he rescued us out of Egypt and all we could do was complain? You remember that? Encouraging. But it is encouraging because that hard-hearted rebellion is set in contrast against God's faithfulness in bringing a Savior for his people through David. So, pick it up again in verse 26. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So, picture yourself a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, self-absorbed man who goes through the motions of religion, but your heart really isn't in it. Some of you might be there. By contrast, Picture yourself a a faithful, God-fearing, law-keeping man who trusts in God, but doesn't really fully understand how salvation all works. Maybe you're there today. And one day, a guy comes to you and says, Brothers, the message of salvation from God has come for you. It's arrived For you, everything that you've been waiting for has finally come to pass. Everything Scripture taught about a Savior has happened. So, back in Jerusalem, there were these hard-hearted Jews who didn't understand Jesus, or the Scripture that they were reading, ironically, every single week. And so they actually killed Jesus in accordance with their own Scriptures. They couldn't see it. I know, crazy, right? That they would do that, that they would kill Jesus in accordance with the book that they have been reading. They couldn't see it. And then this Jesus, he comes back to life. And people see him. And those people are now witnesses to everybody else. They're going out and they're telling everybody. Because how could you not? How could you not see a risen Christ and then want to tell everybody about what you saw? And so they're doing that. And what's happened then, because of that, is there, there is this wave of good news that is flowing out from Jerusalem, and it is flowing all the way out here to Pisidian Antioch and Union Lake. Union Lake! And it's flowing all the way out here to around the world. I love it. In verse 32, Paul says, And we bring you the good news. It's here, guys. The wave has crashed into the shores of Turkey. The God's goodness has even reached out to you folks here. And the source of that goodness is Jesus' fulfillment of the promised Savior that we've all been waiting for. Just like in, in just like Peter back in Acts chapter 2, perhaps you remember the first time when he was speaking on the day of Pentecost to the people on the street. What he does is he goes through a set of David's Psalms and shows them how David himself looked forward to the coming of Jesus. And so he shows them Psalms where David wrote that. That's exactly Paul's tactic here. And he shows that David wasn't the Messiah, but he looked forward to the day the Messiah would come. And so Paul concludes in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, watch this, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You're free. The message is you're free. Freedom has finally arrived for you. Jesus is the culmination of the salvation that we have been waiting for. When when we take hold of him, what we are doing is we are being set free from the law that we've been trying to keep that has trapped us in death. And when we take hold of Jesus, we're free from that. Paul is showing them the source of joy. That's that's the that's what he's that's what he's showing. And that's what he's showing to us too. Does sin got you down? Do you feel do you feel the effects of sin? Do you feel the effect of your own wretched, stupid decisions? I do. You make a bunch of dumb decisions and then you start to feel the weight of that on you. Are you are you failing miserably at loving your wife? My wife got up this morning really super early and made breakfast for me, and then I got upset at her. <laughs> and, and then I had to say a quick sorry as I was heading out the door, and I thought, what am I doing? This 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 woman got up. So early this morning, and here I am just setting her day off wrong, right? So I had to text her. I'm so sorry what I did there. And she's like, I love you anyway. It's okay. You're a bonehead. It's fine. It'll pass. Right? Are you shackled to your lust? Guys, man, this is... This lust thing is killing the church. There's so many guys that are living these secret lives online. You go to your computer for joy and just find death there over and over and over again. Are you driven by getting more money? How many of you are from the metro Detroit area, suburbs area? Most of you probably, yeah, right? we got a big idol out here. It's called money and success. And what happens is we just become slaves to our work. Are you like me? Are you starting to hit middle age and you realize that uh, maybe you should be farther ahead in life by now? I I should be doing better. At this point, we should have more money in the bank at this point. I should be better. I should be closer to retirement. I should, I should be I should be building up. I should be a lot farther along than I am right now. The other day I looked in the mirror and I noticed that I have a pimple. I noticed I had a pimple. I turned 39 years old last week and I had a pimple on my face. What am I, 14 all of a sudden? What happened here? How is that possible? You ever feel the same way about your sin though? I was like, I feel like I... My sin just keeps coming back. you got these same besetting sins in your life that you had 30 years ago, and there they are still in the mirror. you got like a spiritual acne that just keeps coming back. How are we going to be set free from all that? How are we going to be set free? Paul says, through this man and by this man. That's source language. That's source language. Through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You could not be freed by keeping the law. And so He came. Because He's going to be the source of of being set free. The source of your joy. And, and, And you know what? The world says, be happy by doing everything you want to do. And we as Christians step back, well, that's wrong. That's not true at all. They say, throw off all your constraints. And we say, that's, that's completely wrong. But you know what happens a lot of times? Well-meaning Christians counter this rule with rules and laws. And we tell people that they're going to be far happier and more joyous in life if they keep God's law. 
follow his rules, live within his boundaries of morality, then, then you're going to have a happy life. Guys, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. The Gospel says the source of joy is faith and trust in the One through whom and by whom we are forgiven and set free. Now, yes, if you follow Jesus, you will be obedient. But don't get it flipped, guys. Don't get it flipped. Joy doesn't flow out of obedience. Obedience flows out of joy. Let me say it again. Joy, real joy, does not flow out of obedience as its source. No. Obedience is the fruit of, is what flows out of, true joy. My marriage vows don't create in my heart love for my wife. Love for my wife and the joy of being with her and being in a relationship with her is what compels me to make vows and keep vows to her. You see that? In the same way, my obedience to God is a joyous response to the revival that He has sparked in my heart through faith in Jesus. It's a response to that. Let me show you what happens in Pisidian Antioch. So people begged, begged to have Paul come back the next week and speak again about these things. And and you know what? When I read that, I feel very good for Paul because that's not how it usually goes down for him. Oh, come on back next week. You're like, really? That is not how this usually goes. <laughs> but he got to. For one week, he got to. And the next week, he goes back and he preaches the gospel again. And the gospel uh, did what the gospel does. It divided people between those who experienced revival in their hearts by hearing it and having their hearts transformed by it and divided them from those who reject it and refuse it. And they refuse to listen And in verse 48, we get that wonderfully insightful description of God at work in saving his people. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. At the preaching of God's word, God said, now I'm going to take the preached word and I'm going to put it into and transform the dead, broken hearts of my people among whom these, that are scattered among this crowd that has gathered and I'm going to transform them because I've appointed them to eternal life. And they come back to life. And what happens when they come back to life? It says they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord. Revival led to their joy. What happened to Paul and his team? Well, it lasted only a week. But the next week, everybody raised up against him, chased him out of town. He kicked the dust off of his feet against that town. And what does it say? Verse 52, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Praise God for what he did in there. Praise God that he grabbed his people, that he revived the hearts of his people at the preaching of his word so that they would come to life and be filled with his joy. The result of gospel preached, received, and effective in our hearts is joy. It's exactly the same for you. It's exactly the same for me. The Holy Spirit's revival of your soul brought about through faith in Jesus through whom and by whom we are saved and set free is the epicenter of the earthquake that will produce the tsunami of joy in your life. Now, without that, you will never have it. Without that transformation, that revival, you will never actually have the joy that you long for. Now, 
here's the thing. You might say to me, Kyle, look, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I love him passionately. But I'm not happy all the time. In fact, maybe today you're feeling terrible about things. I have a New Testament professor uh, named Robert Yarbrough, uh, and he said there'd be something wrong if all we did as Christians is walk around with forced smiles on our faces like grinning idiots. His words. If all we just walked around like, hey, it's great to be a Christian today, like constantly, no, like, no matter what happened, we were just always smiling, always cheery. He said something would be desperately wrong with us at that point. And in a moment, we're going to look at the effect of true joy. But before I, I, I do, I, I don't want to leave our discussion of the source without listening to the source himself tell us what joy is going to look like when we live it out in the world. After describing his own trouble in the world, Jesus said that we too would experience trouble, just like he did. Remember when he said it? What did he say after that? Stay happy, guys. Keep your focus. Stay positive. Come on, always be smiling. Don't break into sorrow. You're Christians. Hey, you're never supposed to feel bad about anything at all. That's not what he said. Of course that's not what he said. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's the only verse we've all memorized. He wept openly. He wept openly And he was about to bring Lazarus back to life. Like minutes later. And he knew that. And yet he still wept over that moment of losing his friend. Jesus said that when we encounter the inevitable trouble that we're going to face as his followers in this sin-torn, this death-drenched world, we are to do what? We are to take heart. Why? Because he has overcome the world. We we won't be grinning idiots. But what will happen is he will build up our heart's resolve because we're going to be sourced in him. Take heart because I remember Jesus. Remember the one who is overcome in the difficulty. He's overcome. We're in him. It's going to be okay. When we return to Christ in our pain, we find hope and peace to go on. And that's what gospel-sourced joy looks like. G.K. Chesterton put it like this. He called joy the gigantic secret of the Christian. I love that phrase. Joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Meaning those of us who have Jesus have a source of hope and joy that the rest of the world is longing for but can't find. And the reason that they can't find it, the reason it's a secret, is that it's wrapped up in a savior that the world rejects. Okay? They want the joy. They would love it if they just knew it. They would love the joy they would find in Christ, but it's wrapped in a savior that says, come and follow me and live for me and, and pick up your cross for me. Oh, if they only knew what they were pushing away. If they only truly understand what they're pushing away. Chesterton writes this. He says, Gigantic joy is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Gigantic joy is not impervious to pain or inattentive to heartbreak. Gigantic joy doesn't laugh in the middle of tsunami sorrow, broken promises, or the irrevocable consequences of sinful rebellion. What gigantic joy does is give the Christian a bottomless pool of hope 
that allows the Christian the energy and steadfastness not to grow weary in doing well. This kind of joy is the secret of being able to face sin and sorrow honestly and still at the end of the day sing the doxology. I love that. He's right. Think about the think about the doxology and how it just gets the source exactly right. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Briefly, let's look at the gift of joy. Let's look at the effect that that joy has on us as Christians. If you would, turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 8 here. verse 8 I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption you make known to me the path of life in your presence there are is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. First thing you have to notice there is that David has his joy sourced correctly. I have set the Lord always before me. That goes along with verse 2 where he says, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So understand that David knows where his hope is found. He knows where he's going to get joy from. You don't get the effect of joy without the root of joy plugged into the right place. So he's properly grounded. Properly rooted. So what happens then? Well, first he says, he won't be shaken. You ever get the end of a really, really discouraging day and all you want to do is fast forward to the end of it? You get home from work and you're like, if I could just somehow hit a time warp to take me right to bed, that would be amazing. I had a day like that this week. And uh, I don't know what it is. I think church planners just seem to get more than their share of setbacks and discouragements in ministry. So uh, don't do it. Don't, don't do it unless you are compelled uh, by the Holy Spirit beyond your control to go plant a church, do not do it. Okay? Come talk to me if you're planning to do it. I will talk you out of it. And if I can't, then you know you're supposed to plant a church. But here's the thing. I am not special. I am not special. We've all been there, right? We've all been there. We've all had that kind of discouragement. To be shaken means to have your foundation break. That's what it means to be shaken. Christians who are built on faith have a foundation of Christ that will not ultimately crumble when the discouragement piles onto it. Because we know that hope isn't found in the world. It's not found there. So we're not looking there for it. Without Christ, your hope is found where? Where do you, where do you find hope if it's not in Christ? Well, it's going to be. It's probably going to be in money, first of all. First of all right? Money is going to be your savior. You know how, how, how that goes away so quickly? Or it's in your own ability, or it's in the government, 
Or it's in the human spirit. Can somebody explain to me what the human spirit is exactly? Yet it is the driving force for the theology of so many people in our in our world, right? Chesterton's tsunami sorrow just blows all that over like a sandcastle, guys. Without the Lord, trials in life are meaningless pain. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine going through your whole life thinking that every painful thing you hit is meaningless? It didn't have to happen and there's no point to it at all? That would be unbearable. But hope founded on the unshakable creator God, who is sovereignly reigning over everything, who is not surprised by difficulty, fellas, who even uses difficulty to build up in us perseverance of faith, that's solid hope. That's a foundation you can build on. It it, it won't move because the person who sets the Lord always before him knows that everything that comes at them in life is actually ultimately coming from the hand of God who makes all the things that come at you work for the good of those who love Him and are obedient to Him. That's what Romans tells us, right? That's a foundation. He will not be shaken. Secondly, His heart is glad and His whole being rejoices. Now that sounds pretty good. That's some pretty good stuff there. Here's that joy that we want so much. David is, is, is David's conscious choice to set the Lord before him, he says, results in a joyous heart. He's glad. So when the good things come at you, you can rejoice in them. This is where um, this is where Chesterton's bottomless pool of hope for energy and steadfastness starts to make sense to us. And we can enjoy the things of life, not as some sort of a fleeting moment of happiness, but for what they really are. Blessings from God. They really are blessings from God. My wife and I went to breakfast the other day uh, for my birthday, and we went out to breakfast, and we went into this restaurant we'd never been to, and on the menu they had creme brulee French toast. Wow! I can't believe two people, somebody creative enough put those two things together. I love both those things. Put them together. They're amazing. It's like the best French toast I've ever had. Thank you, God. Praise God. He created somebody who had the capacity to come up with that. After breakfast, we went over to a, a, a library that was nearby. And uh, at this library, they were having a used book sale. And they were selling classical music CDs for 50 cents a piece. I bought $8.50 worth. I know I'm a nerd. It's fine. I get it. I love that stuff. It makes me relax. I love classical music. I don't have a musical note in my body. Seriously, I don't. I can't even... Tom will tell you. I have no musical notes in my body. But I am so glad. I am so thankful to the Lord that He made people who do have that and can make these wonderful notes come together and come alive. The point is that those things that are good in the world for a Christian become opportunities to worship and praise. They become worship. Those things that are that are temporary fleeting enjoyments to the world become sources of gospel joy. Or I should say more precisely, opportunities to praise the source of our gospel joy. But even the bad things and the hard things are opportunities for joy. And these are the ones that are harder to see for us. These are the ones we don't think about so often. The joy of the world, you'll see, ebbs and flows with the goodness or badness of what they're experiencing. That's how joy works in the world. And as, as Dr. Ortland said last night, you know, they're doing the best they can. But that's not how it works for a Christian. 
The Christian whose joy is rooted in Christ will have joy even through the difficulties. Because even those things we know are from the hand of God. James, in his letter, started off right off the bat with, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you what? When you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, and so we, we go to God and we're like, God, this is really painful. I just lost my job. My wife just got sick. My kid's moving back into the basement, God. He's coming home. He's coming back. My daughter. My daughter is walking away from you. I see her making choices, incrementally moving her way away from the gospel. I can't pay my bills. I don't know what I'm going to do here. I vacillate between, back and forth between, between being depressed and being Anxious, God, where are you in all of this pain? That stuff crushes the world. It crushes the world. But the one whose heart is revived by the Lord listens to his voice throughout Scripture where he says, I got you. You're mine. Even, even, this, even this hard thing is from me. I am, I'm working on you. There's nothing in all of my creation that's outside of my control. you got to rest in me, son. you got to rest in me. I'm making you perfect, and I'm making you complete, and I'm using this trial in your life to do it. And what happens to your heart even through those tears, when you've got your joy sourced in Christ and you, you hear Scripture and you're experiencing this trial, what happens in your heart? Joy. And you say, alright, Father, if this is what I need from you to be shaped into the man of God, the man of Christ you called me to be, then get on with it. Use it. How you need to trim me to be like Jesus, even with this really difficult thing. That's gospel source joy at work. And thirdly, David says, he dwells secure because he's not on the path to death, but on the path to life. If you look again at verses 10 and 11, you'll see two very different destinations that are there. The corruption of Sheol, and the path of life that leads to the presence and pleasures of of the Lord. You see that there? And despite what David's going through right now, he knows that the direction he's ultimately heading is toward the Lord. So he's going through a tough time as he writes this, but he knows where he's heading. A revived heart rooted in Christ gives us the hope to say, I know things look bad now, but it's only temporary. I can't see what's coming around the bend, but I know where the road ends. I'm in the presence of God. I'm walking the path that isn't to the grave, but to glory. I'm going to raise. I'm not going to rot. And here we have the promise of God's sovereignty over his salvation. He doesn't abandon his kids. If he did... David would have written something more like, you probably won't abandon my life to Sheol based on how I do with making improvements to my life based on the faith that you've given me. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say that. Salvation isn't an incomplete puzzle. At that same book uh, store that we went to, my wife pointed out to me that behind me uh, was a table where they were selling 
used puzzles. And uh, apparently people check puzzles out of the library. I don't know. But they were selling them. And on one of the boxes, there was a note. And the note said, one missing piece, $2. Who's going to pay $2 for a puzzle that has a missing piece in it? My wife just looked at me. She's like, who's going to want that? Who would possibly buy? I mean, you're going to need to put $0 on that to get rid of it. You're going to have to toss that. It's, it's, a box, you're, it's effectively a box of trash. Why would you buy that? Yet some people think that God's salvation comes just like that. That it's this sort of unassembled project that you have to work on. Oh, and by the way, there's a missing piece that you're going to have to fill in with something you got to bring to the table on this. So keep on working on your salvation. Christian, if you're struggling with finding the joy of salvation... May I suggest to you that maybe you are not resting in the completed work of Christ in you? Dr. Orland totally stole my thunder on this today. Maybe you're not resting right. Maybe you're not thinking about what God has done for you completely apart from you. Maybe you're not thinking about the fact that he's put you on a path to lead to his presence and that you're walking that every day. Oh, sure, God is at work in us. He's, he's cleaning us up. That's not an easy job. We're going to feel that. But our wrestling with sin, our wrestling with sin is not a sign that He has left us, but is evidence that He is at work within us as His adopted children. You're wrestling with sin like, oh, God must hate me. If you are wrestling with sin, that's great. That's, that's evidence of God's work within you. People outside of God's family are not wrestling with their sin like that. That's evidence of God's work. Friends, even your conviction over sin is a source, is a, is a reason to joy. You believe that? Thank you God that you have revived my heart to feel the abhorrence of my own sin. Have you ever rejoiced in the fact that you feel bad about yourself? You should. We all should. Ironic, I know. But we should. We should be so thankful that God has not left us to find some fleeting joy in other things, but has given us an abhorrence for our sin that we can rejoice in, even as painful as it is. That's the Spirit of Christ at work within us. And if that's you, I wanted to say to you, congratulations. You're not going to see corruption. God is making known to you the path of life that leads to His presence. That's gospel joy at work. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit-empowered revival. That everywhere we look in our lives, everywhere we see anything that's happening in our lives, we would see a reason for joy. So men, I want to encourage you this morning. Go after joy. Pursue it. Go after it with both arms, both hands. Get as much joy as you can possibly get. Fight for joy. Make your whole life about the pursuit of the most joy because if you do that, in order to do that, you will have to root yourself in Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. And when your joy is in Him, then you'll be propelled by the things that He loves. You'll be on His mission. And then every sacrifice will be an opportunity for you to worship Christ. And every anxious day will be a reason to cry out to God. And every sinful temptation will propel you back to Christ. And every blessing that you receive will be a gift from Christ. And all of it will be evidence of the revival that's happened in your heart.